That's one way you can think about his work is it's not that markets fail, it's that they fail to exist. And if we can identify what are the transaction costs that are preventing markets from emerging for particular things, that that might give us some alternatives to say um, regulation. Hello, and welcome back to another installment of the Essential Scholars podcast. I'm your host, Rosemary Fike, and today I'm going to be having part two of my conversation with Lynn Kiesling about the Essential Scholar, Ronald Coase. Lynn is a research professor in the College of Engineering, Design, and Computing at the University of Colorado, Denver, and the co-director of the Institute for Regulatory Law and Economics. She's also an adjunct professor within Northwestern University's Masters of Science in Energy and Sustainability program. Thank you so much for joining us again, Lynn. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed part one of our conversation, and so today I hope we can talk a little bit more about uh, modern applications of Coase's work and, and how Coase has influenced other scholars in particular, um, because his work really seemed to open up a lot of new fruitful avenues of research. Yep. Yes, it did. And, um, and in particular, it's, you know, one of the pervasive themes in Coase's work is that we live in a world that's full of transaction costs and that when we as economists model, you know, we, we do our economic theory and we model the world assuming away transactions costs, assuming away the institutional framework that we use that, are, that emerges because of transactions costs, we are um, missing a lot of the interesting questions. And so he, by his pointing that out very clearly, he kind of opened the door for a bunch of other scholars to take that in a lot of different and very fruitful directions. Yeah, he um, started, or he's associated with um, how many other new schools of thought that kind of branched off of his work? Yeah, there was institutional and organizational economics, transaction cost economics, um, you know, all the various and various and sundry because he, he, in addition to his two you know, main papers he's most known for, The Nature of the Firm and The Problem of Social Cost, you know, he's been very active in a lot of different areas that I guess we could categorize as in the, in the complicated questions in economics. Ah, so the, the messier questions about maybe when the market doesn't work out so nicely, yeah. uh, maybe what we would call market failures. Right. And one thing, and I, I often to this day, I mean, I think I literally used this in a meeting last week that, you know, a, a, a kind of a, if you want to have a real true Kosian perspective on quote unquote market failure, um, you know, as a, from a transactions cost perspective, he might argue market, it's not that markets fail, it's that markets fail to exist. That oh. the, the pervasiveness of transactions costs means that we can't necessarily, um, markets don't always emerge to allow us to deal with all of the different social dilemmas. And, um, and so I think that's, that's one way you can think about his work is that is it's not that markets fail, it's that they fail to exist. And if we can identify what are the transaction costs that are preventing markets from emerging for particular things, 
that that might give us some alternatives to say um, regulation? So one really interesting area where Coase kind of um, kind of challenged conventional wisdom uh, was with his work on lighthouses and public goods. So can can you talk? So that's that would be a market that kind of maybe fails to exist when we're talking yeah. about true public goods. Can exactly. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and and um, that's a really good example of of the idea because. In the late 1940s, early 1950s, Paul Samuelson is uh, developing and formalizing what has come to be known as public good theory. And public good theory is, uh, you know, is, and, and he was doing it all you know, systematically in a, in a very formal mathematical framework. And one, and this is one thing that I think a lot of non-economists who like to use this concept, um, they play a little fast and loose with the concept. And we as economists, it's incumbent upon us to try to be clear in our communication to keep that from happening. Because a lot of people think a public good is just something that creates benefits for, for more than just one person. Like, well, not exactly. There's a, de a very strict technical definition of a public good. A public good has two characteristics. It has to be non-excludable, which means that if I produce the good, I can't exclude anyone else from, from consuming it. And uh, it also has to be non-rival, which means that if say 10 people are already consuming the good and you add another person, that that doesn't reduce the amount that's available for others to consume. And so the quintessential example of a pure public good in that sense is national defense. And the, the, the argument, so it's non-excludable because basically if you're defending the borders of a country, anyone who is within the perimeter of that country enjoys the benefits of national defense. And it's also non-rival because you can add additional people and everyone still gets the same amount of, of defense. And um, this is, you know, th this is kind of the, 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 stere the, the real poster child example of, of a quote unquote pure public good. And the argument for government provision of pure public goods is that because, because they're non-excludable, you know, uh, you can have an additional person consume it without paying for it. Mm -hmm. they just, you know, waltz right in and consume it without paying for it. And so you would end up if you if you go around and you try to get people voluntarily to pay for it, um, you might want to do that based on trying to figure out how much they're actually going to use. Mm -hmm. And this this often comes up in questions like bridges. You know, how much yeah. how much are you going to use the bridge? Oh, I only go over to the other side of town once a week when really you are there five times a day. Mm -hmm. And so this is called the free rider problem and that the, you have an incentive to understate your use of, of the, the good or the resource. And so therefore it's going to not enough revenue is going to be raised from it. And so it will be, the argument is that it will not be provided, not as much of it, it will be provided privately as would be quote unquote optimal. 
And so that's because if I'm trying to make a profit, why on earth would I put forth all that time and effort if everybody can just take what I produce and I can't capture those benefits? Exactly. And and so traditionally, you know, and this goes back, you know, into the 18th century, traditionally the um, lighthouse and and so this idea of a public good really got codified and formalized and systematized in the 20th century but in the mid 20th century by paul samuelson but the general concept of the idea of public good had been around for a while and you know so people are making kind of looser public good arguments for things like lighthouses and um and and so Coase very famously wrote a paper called The Lighthouse in Economics. And before Coase, uh, economists really did use lighthouses as a good example of a public good and said they were non-excludable and that they were non-rival because, um, you know, if, if you have a lighthouse, all the ships that can see the light, you know, benefit from the light. And if I come by in my, in my little boat, you can't exclude me from the light from the lighthouse. Um, and that it's non-rival because you can add more and more and more ships and, and not dilute the benefits of the lighthouse to the other ships. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, um, Coase really, and, and what's interesting and important about this paper is he didn't necessarily refute the argument that, um, that lighthouses are, are in some ways non-excludable and in some ways non-rival, but you can imagine like an edge case, an extreme case where you have just so many ships that it's, you know, the harbor is really congested um, and that so that, that it's more of a congestible um congestible good and so that it is rival to some extent but what's rival is not the light what's rival mm -hmm. is the the kind of space in the harbor but um so he didn't really refute those what he did is he said um just because something has these characteristics that doesn't necessarily mean that the only way to provide them is through government taxation Right. So um, what in, in the lighthouse and economics, what he did, and, and again, it's really similar to the problem of social cost, was that he went back into like centuries old bodies of law and 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 kind of harbor practice in England and and kind of went through and said, OK, well, how did people deal with with lighthouse costs? Before, before essentially the lighthouse fleet around around the Great Britain was nationalized, um, and one of the things that that he found was that there were there was institutional variety in how different pe different people in different places dealt with paying for lighthouses, and um, in particular, I, I can't remember the exact name, but um, but I will. Um, I will put a, a shout out for our colleagues, um, Vince Geloso and, and Rosalina Candela have a great paper, two great papers actually, on um, Cosa's lighthouses. And it's essentially 
updating the economic history that Coase did in his Lighthouse paper, and that there were basically people who were kind of, that provided a service called pilotage. Mm -hmm. And so each harbor would have people who would basically go out. And if you're a ship and you're not very familiar with that harbor, but you navigate in, um, you know, it's, it's in essence a complement to the lighthouse. Right? Mm -hmm. The lighthouse may be important, but it's not the only part of the story of navigation. So if you think about the service that's being offered more broadly is navigation, the lighthouse is only one part of it, and you have these pilotage services. And so these guys in little boats would come out and if you, um, and basically kind of fish you in to harbor and you know you paid them a service fee for that and uh but that was a very competitive market there were quite a few people who would offer those services and you know maybe over time if you you are often piloting your ship into that harbor you might develop relationships with a couple of those folks um, and have kind of repeated interactions but in general is you know this idea of harbor navigation as a market was very competitive and the lighthouse was only one part of it. But, but um, so part of your piloting fee went to the pilotage person who's piloting you in and part went to the lighthouse. So they're kind of bundling together that payment of the lighthouse fee, which is not, or it's not excludable, but you know, your ability to, to come and bring your ship into the Harbor, that is excludable. We can, we can say, no, you can't come here. Yep, exactly. So, so, so it's a great example of Coase, again, basically saying the institutions matter and the institutions may differ depending on the characteristics and context in different situations. And it's, it's really a, testament to how robust markets can be, right? Even in some of these hard cases, people can be really creative about the ways that they figure out how to solve solve that type of problem. Right. And another good example of that also comes from Britain and um, was part of not necessarily Kosa's work, but, but one of Kosa's students, Stephen Chung, uh, I believe, who wrote a paper about um, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, RNLI, in the UK. So there's a, an organization that provides um, lifeboats to go out if there's a wreck. And, and so they're kind of, kind, of, kind of like the Coast Guard in the U.S., but um, basically they have a fleet of, of ship, fleet of little boats, and they have them all in, in specific locations, and um, you don't you don't pay if you get rescued, you know. So it's not a pay a fee for service type setup, but it's also not taxpayer funded. It's not government funded. It's a philanthropy, and so RNLI is is one of the most um, uh, one of the largest and most successful charities in Britain. So I think, and that's one of one of Coase's big points in this area of his work was that there are other solutions to public good provision. You can have private provision of public goods just because, just because a good has some of these non-excludability and non-rivalry characteristics, doesn't necessarily mean that it um, that you need to have taxpayer funding of it. 
And I think what you said at the beginning, that this is a really challenging concept for a lot of students to, to understand. I know that when I, when I talk about public goods in my classes, I first start by asking my students to name some things that they think are public goods. And they tell me a whole list of things that the government does and none of them actually meet that technical definition of non-rival and non-excludable. Um, and so the kind of average person assumes that we need more political involvement in those market spaces than what in reality might be the case. And then on top of that, Coase is talking about, even when we are talking about these rare public goods cases, we still don't always need to turn to the state to solve that problem. And I mean, one, one example that I always use with students is broadcast radio, mm -hmm. right? Because, because broadcast radio is, you know, absolutely non-excludable and completely non-rival. And yet we have two different funding models. One is advertising funding for, for commercial radio broadcasts. Mm -hmm. And then there's public radio, which is almost entirely supported by individual donations. It mm -hmm. used to be supported more in the U.S. by um, government grants, but those have really have really diminished as a funding source for public radio. And I'm a big free rider of public radio. I listen to public radio all the time, and very rarely do I actually donate during the pledge drives, but they've gotten clever. They've used some some Kosian tactics. They bundle uh, mm -hmm. they bundle the donation. If I donate, then I might get entered into a drawing for some concert tickets or some exclusive yep. memorabilia that I can't get anywhere else. So yep. they're they're really, you know, using these tactics to encourage us to to voluntarily contribute. It's very, yep. very Kosian. Um, so one of the things I thought of when you were talking about uh, this, you know, creative ways that we might solve public goods issues, I was thinking about the work of, of Eleanor Ostrom. She seems to be heavily influenced by by Coase. Can you can you talk about maybe how how her work built on on what Coase had kind of laid out there for us? Oh, yes. Um, try not to talk all day because you know, Ostrom is, Eleanor Ostrom is great. She's one of my sheroes. Mm -hmm. uh, so Eleanor Ostrom was not an economist, actually, trained as a political scientist um, and worked much of her career at Indiana University, where she and her husband, Vincent, co-founded the Ostrom Workshop in Political Economy. And so they worked at the intersection of economics and political science and very much came from this institutional perspective. And so in the 60s, as, as uh, 60s and early 70s, as they were developing their work uh, and, and um, you know, looking at questions that historically we would have categorized in the area of public administration, Right. So how do these different how do these different jurisdictions deal with kind of public decision making? And but they are coming to they are, are really coming to kind of this institutional diversity and the institutions matter type conclusions separate from COSA's work. But then they really dovetailed and they and, and Eleanor Ostrom in particular really started, I think, picking up on a lot of the themes 
that are very transaction cost informed uh, from Kosa's work. But she is, is most famous for her work, her 1990 book, Governing the Commons, and then her subsequent work uh, on um, basically on the question of what are what are the ways that people in communities create, discover, and create to try to um, to try to manage the uh, decisions that they make and the uses they make of common pool resources. Mm-hmm. And so these common pool resources are things like that are that have. Um, very unclear property rights. Uh, so things like, um, and, and networks, you know, these days we would think a lot about networks as being an example of the kind of thing where you have people who are in a community using a network, but the, the benefit that they're getting from it is the fact that it's a shared, you know, it's a shared resource. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of her examples, uh, you know, irrigation systems, Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, I like irrigation systems as an example, just because it really illustrates the fact that these common pool resources are different from public goods, mm-hmm. right? So you you still say within a community, you may or may not be able to exclude people from using the irrigation system. It'll depend on on mm-hmm. the kind of physical and topographical setting of of the environment. And, um, but in common pool resources, you know, they, they may be non-rival, but only non-rival up to a point. And then you get to some point where, you know, the, the kind of the capacity of the system, where if you take out another gallon of water from the system, that's one less gallon for me mm-hmm. in a way that is really going to harm my rice farming. Right. Right. In rice farming, we need to talk about acre feet, gallons. <laughs> gallons are a drop in the bucket. But um, but and and by mentioning rice farming, that gets to one of the other things that's really important about uh, Ostrom's work is that she did, um, and it's something that w- was very congenial to Coase as well. Is that she did a lot of different multiple, she combined multiple methodologies. Mm-hmm. So she definitely comes from a theory background and is happy to use game theory and to use laboratory experiments to kind of test the theory and say, okay, you know, here's some ways we can kind of think about, you know, how are these people, how are these people managing their shared use of this irrigation system? Mm-hmm. Um, but then she would also do extensive field work and you know travel to um, rice farming communities in Cambodia and do extensive shadowing of them while they were working and interviewing people to talk about their practices and you know okay as a as a community how do you make decisions about who's going to be able to use the irrigation system, how much, you know, what, what does the use rate actually give them? Um, you know, how much can they use? When can they use it? What are some restrictions on when and how much? Um, so all of those different contours of what is very, very complicated decision-making and in situations, you know, cause you know, 
agriculture in particular and, and fishing is another great example that use Ostrom's work where um, your ability to make a living is highly contingent on a whole bunch of factors that are outside of your control. Mm-hmm. And so any governance system that we come up with for our community has to be robust to the reality that you know some years there's going to be a bad harvest because of weather or mm-hmm. some years um, the f- the fish reproduction is just not going to be high enough. And so we're going to have to deal with that scarcity and we have to adapt or or, or plenitude in the opposite direction. We have mm-hmm. to adapt to the fact that there are going to be these external changes and you know how can we make the best use of the resource and still get along and live together as peaceable and responsible people in our shared community. Um, yeah, and, and so I think Ostrom's work definitely draws on, on coasts and this idea of institutional diversity. And, um, and uh, I think the, the, the focus on property rights and transaction costs and coming up with, you know, communities basically coming up with bottom-up emergent institutions for self-governance is is, has been some of the most profound work of the past 50 years and it's really fascinating because that blackboard economics that Coase is talking about suggests that this shouldn't be able to take place or or that it, it would be really really difficult for these things to to happen yet people are getting their hands dirty and they're figuring it out um, in in unpredictable ways. Yes, exactly. So experimentation over the rules is something that seems to be important, right? So can you talk a little bit about this like institutional experimentation? How do we foster that type of, of activity in, in an economy? How do we foster that institutional experimentation um, cause I can see situations in which that experimentation over what the rules should look like can, can be growth enhancing, but then we can also talk maybe about, uh, rent seeking and other types of experimentation over the rules where we would get something that is, is socially costly. So how do we foster, uh, that socially beneficial type of of experimentation? Yeah, that's a great and hard question. Uh, I think, and one of the things that Ostrom does to try to grapple with this is that, oh, you know, over the course of her career, she developed a framework that she called IAD, the Institutional Analysis and Design Framework. Mm -hmm. And that she had this list of, I can't remember if it's eight or nine, but, but kind of characteristics that if a community has more of these characteristics, they are more likely to be able to engage in productive, meaningful, bottom-up community self-governance. Mm-hmm. And so it's things like, um, you know, homogeneity. You know, if if everyone in your community is a rice farmer and you're all pretty similar in terms of your family structure and your your background and your your skill and expertise in rice farming, it's going to be a lot easier for you all to come up with uh, an approach to this 
rather than if you have, you know, the river with the paper mill and the water treatment plant and a bunch of different, you know, fishers and mm. swimmers and kayakers, you know, different uses. So if, if the, if you have a, you know, homogeneity in the community and the kind of the, the economic activity, it can be easier to come up with an institutional uh, governance framework. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, community size is, is obviously another that, that, you know, up to a point, you know, smaller communities can experiment. Um, but then at the same time, if, if in these, in smaller communities, they're living closer to, um, you know, kind of closer to blanket on the word, uh, not starvation and and yes we're going to cut this part subsistence thank you yeah so in smaller communities if they're living close to subsistence experimentation can be risky mm-hmm. because then if if your experiment goes wrong then people could could go hungry um, would be bad so so i think there are always going to be these trade-offs but mm-hmm. that in larger in larger communities um you're more, you're not going to be as likely to be able to experiment. And I think the diversity, kind of the, the diversity of economic activity and, and diversity of, of kind of mindsets, I will say, is another challenge because then different people have different expectations for what they're going to achieve by setting up this governance framework mm-hmm. and may have different expectations for what kind of experimentation should or shouldn't go on. Um, and then you economy question, you know, because you mentioned you mentioned that, um, if different people have different expectations, but also if if you have different degrees of political power within the community and that say this group of people over here can lobby the you know community council to either take their experimentation in a certain direction or to not do any, then, you know, that can, that kind of, um, if, if it would benefit that group of people, then that kind of rent seeking can really stifle experimentation. Um, or if, if people, if there are, you know, and this is relates to my own work, if you have parties who are beneficiaries of the rule, the status quo rules as they are, and so they really don't want to see changes. <laughs> and so they're not necessarily going to encourage experimentation. And if those folks have political power, then they can use that power to try to undermine experimentation. So we get what Tullock called the transitional gains trap exactly. scenario. Yep. That is, that is a problem that is difficult to escape. Yes, it is. I feel like my entire my entire body of work right now is in the transitional gains trap <laughs> because you know there's a lot there's a lot going on in in energy industries that um, status quo incumbents are very interested in maintaining the status quo and it's becoming clear to more and more people that they want to move away from the status quo and so yeah we're dealing with that right now they're gonna fight tooth and nail to keep yep. their position. <laughs> Um, so I did want to 
ask a little bit about, um, let me think of how I want to frame this. Ah, so one of the things that you mentioned in the essential Ronald Coase is the issue of holdups, the holdup problem. And so I wanted to, to make sure we talk a little bit about that because that, pro like what that is and, and what kind of problems it brings up, um, because that's something that people bring up time and time again as kind of an impediment to this you know, bottom up type of negotiation process. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a bit about what that problem is and, and how it manifests and, and how we can maybe deal with it? Yeah, and this this strand of work that that builds on on Coase really is coming out of his 1937 paper, The Nature of the Firm. Mm -hmm. And so he's asking, in the nature of the firm, he's asking, you know, if if we're talking about the production of goods and then the exchange of goods, you know, buyer and seller, um, but in particular the production of goods, why? Um, why do firms exist? Why not just have kind of independent private contracts? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I pay, I pay, you know, this group of people to, and he's doing this, you know, in the context of having done a whole bunch of field work in automobile factories in the U S in the 1930s. Um, you know, why don't I just pay a bunch of people, you know, just kind of spot market wages to come in and, and build cars. Mm -hmm. And you can think there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't want to do that. You know, you want annuity, you want to have some certainty. And he argued that at its core, the, the managerial challenges of structuring complicated production, like, like automobiles um, is a transaction cost problem. Mm -hmm. And that, that, you know, having the, um, things like long-term employment contracts and where you organize a hierarchy, which is, a, in, in his thinking, a firm is a hierarchy where you have managers and they manage the other employees and, and make sure that their tasks are all coordinated in ways that, that at least in theory, minimize the cost of producing the goods. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the, in the, and so um, one thing that can happen to, uh, you know, when you're, when it, the follow-on question is, okay, so what does that firm look like? Is that firm just doing one thing or is it, um, is it also organizing, does it own does, does the firm own the kind of upstream input process mm -hmm. um, or, and does it own kind of a downstream retail presence? And so right now, these days, the, a, a good example of that, what we would call vertically integrated firm would be Apple, right? Because Apple doesn't, Apple doesn't own, you know, they, they have factories and plants for where people put together and assemble um, the devices, they don't necessarily own, you know, the lithium mines for the battery and, you know, all of those kind of inputs, but they own the, the, the manufacturing facilities 
and they have the Apple Store. Right? They have both physical, you know, bricks and mortar retail outlets, but then also the Apple Store, the mm-hmm. where you can get your apps and and software and and so on. And so they are vertically integrated between manufacturing and retail. Uh, and then there are other forms of vertical integration where you integrate upstream into your the producers of the inputs into your product. And so you own you own the the input manufacturing as well as you know the product that you're manufacturing. And so these forms of vertical integration are ways to deal with um, with transaction costs. And one of the, this holdup question is a great example of that. And so if you, um, if, and um, there's a, a, a famous example that, um, that Coase and some other, other economists in the 70s analyzed uh, from automobile manufacturing, which is General Motors um, buying the, um, the car body manufacturer, Fisher Body, so um, initially, uh, you know, General Motors was, you know, they were contracting with uh, Fisher Body to make the bodies of their cars. But over time, the bodies of the cars became more and more and more brand specific. Mm-hmm. And so the, that meant that the production of the production of the input, the input was was the body you know, fabricating the body of the car that you're going to basically slip on over the engine and the chassis and everything. And so over time, General Motors wanted more and more General Motors specific characteristics of the bodies they were producing. And initially the Fisher body in General Motors was an independent market contract, but then GM wanted more and more GM specific terms in the contract. But one concern that arises in those kind of contracts is, you know, if I'm, if I'm making that input for you and I'm doing stuff that's very specific to your brand and specific to your company that I can then charge you a higher price because, um, you know, I'm, I, I am the one that can make the thing. I am the only one that can make the thing that, that you're using. And it's going to be harder for you to go out and find competing mm-hmm. you know, car body manufacturers who can do this because, you know, I have developed this over time. I have all the like metal stamps, I have everything. And, um, and so if I say no, then I'm creating a holdup problem. Mm-hmm. And so typically what, um, one of the ways that you can deal with this is, and this is what we saw happen in the GM case, is you buy your supplier because then, and so GM buys Fisher Body. And so one argument for having that kind of vertical integration is that by buying your supplier, you're internalizing that, that you know, input manufacturing process, and you're reducing the likelihood that they're going to hold out and charge you a higher price. Hmm. So, so we can contract around it. We can figure out ways to to overcome that. Yeah, and the the kind of holdout the the that's so that's a, a, a bit of the holdup problem. Um, and I do I want to mention 
another scholar who was inspired by Coase, who's very important in this area, and that's Oliver Williamson. Mm -hmm. And so Oliver Williamson and Eleanor Ostrom were awarded the Nobel Prize in the same year. So they were co-awardees for this area of institutional and organizational economics. Ostrom for her work on common pool resource governance institutions and Williamson for this kind of study of the structure of firms and things like, you know, how do you deal with the holdup problem and how does vertical integration help with that? Um, so Williamson's work is really important here as well. So before we run out of time, I always like to ask, what do you think is the most misunderstood idea of, of Coast? Um, I, I think I know what you might <laughs> say, um, but, but what, what, what would you like to set the record straight yeah. about? Well, you're, you're probably right. Um, there's, I, there's um, just a couple of things that, you know, one thing that I think is misunderstood and one thing that I think is underappreciated. Um, so I'm going to kind of slide that in if you want. Um, so the thing that I think is misunderstood is the Coase theorem. That is exactly what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> and uh, admit it, it's a pet peeve of mine. <laughs> and and so, so, you know, uh, and especially a pet peeve of mine from the years I spent teaching principles of microeconomics, because most textbooks will say, you know, Coase is famous for the Coase theorem, which says, in the absence of transaction costs, it doesn't matter how you assign the property rights. Um, but the parties will be able to bargain to the outcome. <laughs> like, okay, great. Um, sure. And I think the more and more you read the problem of social cost, um, the more you realize that, I mean, he's very explicit about it, that Coase's Coase's interest is not in that kind of question. Coase's interest is in the question of, okay, transaction costs are pervasive in, in social settings. Um, how do we deal with them? And, you know, what are some ways that we can reduce transaction costs to better enable that kind of bargaining? But, you know, this, this question of, you know, in the absence of transaction costs is completely, I mean, he, he sets it up in like one paragraph in the article and it's kind of a straw man foil for him to pivot around. And, um, and here I have to say, I'm, I'm going to be quite critical of George Stigler, who was, <laughs> despite all of Stigler's other, you know, profound and important work here, I don't think he did any of us a favor because he's the one who basically articulated, quote unquote, the Coase theorem and popularized it that way. And, and you know, Stigler was influential enough that now a lot of people think that that is kind of Coase's main contribution. I'm like, no, it's, it's kind of the opposite of what he was focusing on. Period. You need to read past the first page of that paper. <laughs> the rest of the paper is all about how the world is full of transaction costs. Right, exactly. Um, um, so what was the other idea that you think is underappreciated? Well, so the other thing that's underappreciated, and, and here I think it's, um, you know, and some of this is a, a generational thing, and some of it is probably just kind of coast-specific, because 
I don't think, I, I think we've evolved in a direction where we now cite our sources a little more extensively than even was done 70 years ago. And, and so throughout, throughout Kosa's work, you don't have to look very hard to see the influence of his interactions with Hayek. Mm-hmm. Even though he doesn't, he, he cites Hayek in his work occasionally, but, um, but you can see Hayek's insights influencing his, his logic even when he doesn't cite him. And so like for in the problem of social cost, he Coase is making very knowledge-based, very epistemic arguments for approaches that focus on reducing transaction costs and allowing parties to bargain because he frames bargaining as a discovery process. And that bargaining is the process through which parties learn what the least cost way is to deal with this this harm that's being created through through the interaction, and uh, and I think um, the the that kind of epistemic characteristic of Coase is not is not as fully appreciated as um, as I think it it should be. Um, and I think it, it shows up in some of his other work as well that, um, and, you know, that, you know, for example, he does some work on monopoly and um, durable goods monopoly. And uh, in that, you know, the question is, you know, when you have a high fixed cost industry, you know, how should pricing happen and you know how should how should goods be priced to get the quote-unquote efficient outcome and he really is kind of making a very dynamic very knowledge-based set of arguments there as well as in his social cost work Um, and so I would give a shout out to that (laughs) well thank you so much um for those are, who are interested in learning a lot more about Ronald Coase, at the very end of the Essential Ronald Coase book, you have a great list of resources for people who might want to read more. Um, did you want to give a shout out to any of your work, any blogs, any podcasts that might be related that people might want to take a look into? Um, I think uh the 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 resources that are on the essential scholars website are are the places i would start um another good resource for uh coast and coast related uh information is the website for the society for institutional and organizational economics co it's sioe.org and this was um coast co-founded um, CO with uh, Doug North and Oliver Williamson. And, and so it's really an outgrowth of, of, of Coase's influence and is a, a very strong area of research. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I really appreciate learning more about this very essential scholar, Ronald Coase. Thanks, Rosie. This was a great pleasure. You've been listening to Essential Scholars, a new podcast series that explores the ideas and insights of some of history's most influential thinkers. If you've enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe and head over to essentialscholars.org to learn more. See you next time.